we've got to get over the fact that normal and nonspecific changes have nothing to do with each other. Do what you know to be the best interest of the patient and, in other words, be a real doctor. Yeah. If you're going to irradiate grandma, you know, light her up. Make her glow in the dark. Hey, guys. Rick Picotta. Greg Henry. And where are we? Las Vegas. Yes, Lost Wages. We're doing our PANP boot camp course for which we have 750 souls in the audience just soaking this stuff up. Yes, and, and <laughs> I can't believe that they come to hear us, but God love them. Thanks a lot, and uh, we're having a great time here with a great faculty. And we're at Bally's Hotel. Yes. And uh, we have to acknowledge that we're in the second biggest room I've ever been in in my life. This is a suite. They have three of them in the hotel. They're called the Celebrity Suite. You actually have one, and Diane Birnbaumer has yes, one. Yes, we do. This thing's got to be... You know, what, uh, 20,000 square feet, something like that, you know? Yeah, this is bigger than Tom Brady's new house in California. I mean, this is big. Rick, they don't want to hear any more of this. Move on. All right, here you go. Uh, Here's an article. I don't know why it is so old. You know, I got these piles of old stuff, but I saw the word legal in the title, So, and it isn't an interesting topic. It's entitled, Informing Patients About Risks and Benefits of Radiology Examinations Utilizing Ionizing Radiation. A Legal and Moral Dilemma. This is by Dr. Berlin, a radiologist. This was in the American College of Radiology's journal back in 2011. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay. Yep, yep. okay. First of all, this is a radiologist who's talking about legal and moral issues. Already, this is call (laughs) Ripley's and let them know. This has got to be a first. Well, this uh, paper actually goes to a, a fair technical uh, exposition regarding this topic, citing cases around the country um, involving radiation and judges' views of it in terms of, are you obligated to talk to patients about the radiation that comes out of these CT machines? Understand, Rick, this is absolutely new material because when is the last time you heard anybody speak to a patient about an X-ray of their wrist, an X-ray of their chest? I mean, what we're really talking about now is sort of megadose radiation, a a CT of the abdomen is about 450 times the radiation of a chest X-ray. So we're we're talking about some newer concepts here. And although this is a radiologist, he does get into the uh, legal nuances as, as distilled from these cases that he goes over. And he points out that the matter here seems to be whether it is a fact that radiation coming out of these machines causes cancer. That's it. Uh, And specifically, he says, if this is a proven fact, it ups the responsibility to get informed consent. But informed consent is not required if it is concluded that the association between radiation and cancer is based on conjecture, hypothesis, or theory. So, uh, uh, and then there gets into something even further. Even if low levels of radiation cause cancer, some theorize that the frequency is so low that it does not cross the threshold by which patients need to be informed. On the other hand, he points out, that this is problematic because individuals may want the option to determine for themselves the acceptable risk. And the reason I think that that's kind of interesting is we did a paper in the abstracts a long time ago where they asked patients, particularly elderly patients, about whether you wanted to know 
about the side effects of the medicines you wanted you, you were taking. And you would think, eh, well, tell me the major ones. No, no, no. They wanted to know all the side effects in this. <coughs> it was a big series, and it was like they wanted to drill down to the very minor things that you and I would never think yeah, people and, would want to know. And, Rick, it's never going to happen. It ain't going to happen in our lifetime well, this is that what you go through every reported potential risk. Because, quite frankly, a lot of those things are never subjected to real independent study. They appear in the in the PDR, that sort of thing. That doesn't mean it's actually gone through difficult scrutiny. Now, there's some real stuff out there, obviously. But to list every possible side effect, nah. Well, the reason I bring this up is... Their expectations are unreasonable, but th- this uh, this study was overwhelming that they wanted to know everything. Yes. So what they want and what they get, but here's the here's the thing. They this paper says, you, paper, people <coughs> may want to decide for themselves what risks they're willing to accept. Well, I would think that Rick, at all the papers we've looked at, there are more and more studies are making it clear that radiation is associated. You know, from associated. Associated. This says it has to be a fact. Yes. Well, that's a legal concept, not a medical concept. We never have anything proven 100%. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, he concluded that there are these issues, but he said it is not the community standard to obtain informed consent, so each practice may choose to set its own policy. Well, I th- I think that that's a little bit dangerous. You know, in the emergency department, particularly when I don't want to do a study, <laughs> I do inform parents of the risks of uh, radiation <laughs> it's to so children. It's selective reporting. It's selective. The other thing is, I think we have to be honest here, that if you're going to irradiate grandma, you know, light her up. <laughs> Make her glow in the dark. The chances... If she's got two years left to live, that you're going to cause her cancer or small. When you're talking about Joey, who's four years old, and uh, I've seen one of these cases where he got two CT scans of the abdomen within 12 hours looking for appendicitis. You know what? If you multiply that out and the additive effects, I think that that's not right. Oh, listen, do we not re- share the case? Where the kid got five CTs for yes, appendicitis? Yes, yes, that was and just the, What about over at Cedar sinai Medical Center, the hospital where the stars, where they had this thing, CT machine miscalibrated somehow, and everybody was getting a CT of, of their head was starting to lose their hair, so they went back and said, holy smokes. Yes. You know, <laughs> literally, holy smokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure Cedars loves us talking about this. So basically, this guy says, it seems that the obligation to get informed consent uh, increases if it is a fact that radiation uh, causes cancer. So let's uh, stop here, and we will give you a great case that suggests the definitive thing is getting real close that it does. Yes. So, Greg, let me tell you about the most recent paper that really makes it pretty clear that there's a problem with radiation and cancer. This was in the British Medical Journal. No, 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 I'm wrong. The BMJ. BMJ, right. They don't call it's It's officially no longer the British Medical Journal. This was in the uh, May t- 2013 issue, a current paper, entitled, it's a ridiculous title. I don't even know if I want to read it. It says, Cancer Risk in 680,000 People Exposed to CT Scans in Childhood or Adolescence. 
data linking 11 million Australians. Now, the you know, this is an Australian study, so we don't know whether it extrapolates. The Australians are all ex-criminals. We don't, we don't know what their gene pool is like in terms of whether it applies to us. Well, and the other thing is, when you're linking Australians, does it move right to left or left to right? Yes, I exactly. Mean, what yeah, is that called? The, uh, the Cor- uh, Coriolis effect. Coriolis? Yes. Okay. That's a quiz question there. That's it for cocktail parties. <laughs> anyway, let me summarize what this paper says. Compared to those not exposed to CT scan, the incidence of cancer was, catch this, 24% 24 higher than in those not exposed. Now, always when you use a relative term, it makes it look much worse, but 24% is not nothing to sneeze at here, Chief. Yep. The mean duration of follow-up was nine and a half years. So obviously the risk is going to, you know, what if a follow-up was 30 years? It's obviously going to be much more than 24%. But that's what they found at nine and a half years. And they also found, to make it even worse, a dose-response relationship was also noted for each incremental CT that they had, and the increased risk was greatest for the youngest age people in the study. All of that's logical. You're well, dealing, dealing with the most vulnerable tissue. You're giving it multiple doses of radiation. What's hard about this? Well, Rick? have we crossed the line to say this is a fact? Is it now a fact? This is the closest study to saying it is a fact. And so, according to the prior paper, it ups the thing, up the, ups the ante here in terms of, well, it's not so much so theoretical. We're not talking about Hiroshima anymore. Right, right. Tell us about the next paper, Greg. I, I love these coming up. <laughs> yeah, this is, this, is, uh, this is a tough one. Uh, Rick, if you ever want to find a way to get yourself into trouble and to violate uh, acts w- or, or things which have already been decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, listen to this one. This is a recent a New Mexico case. The trigger to this lawsuit was uh, brought on by an uncertified drug-sniffing dog by the name of Leo. Leo caused the problem here. Yeah, Leo was the problem. His credentials were not in order. Yes. Your papers are not in order. A man was pulled over for a traffic violation. Leo sniffed drugs uh, on the gentleman. A search warrant was issued. The plaintiff was taken to two hospitals. I don't know why two hospitals. Well, uh, do you look at the workup? Yeah, yeah. And he was forced to have anal probes, three enemas, two body x-rays and a colonoscopy and no drugs were found okay the hospital then sent the patient a bill and i can't believe how cheap it was six thousand dollars the but the the same first of all i don't know why they sent the bill to the hospital that should have been sent to the Mm -hmm. people who put him under arrest that should have been sent to the county. Well, many times they they, they have this pseudo <laughs> classification of, well, he's not been booked, you know, so he's technically not, you know. Yeah, I don't like that. I want to know who's in charge. Did he have the right to leave? Then no. he's being held. Okay, no. he's being held. Well, the reason we're talking about this is obviously some physician in these hospitals ordered these tests. Right. What happened was they they decided that there would be a search. And, you know, uh, we've mentioned this in the past. The Supreme Court has ruled three or four times now on invasion of the body. They decided that taking blood was a usual and customary medical procedure 
and that there really was little to no harm to the patient. When you get into doing things like uh, anal probes, when you start getting into invasive three enemas, a colonoscopy, uh, a colonoscopy, I think, you know, this will not stand the test if it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. It will not stand the test. Well, uh, the reason we're including this here is because uh, do you perceive a risk to the phys- to the nutty doctor who agreed to to, to I mean, the the police didn't say, "Hey, listen, let's do this." You know, here's a list of the things we'd like to do. Well, in the in the classic case uh, in the Supreme Court, uh, they said that the passage of a of an NG tube offended the sensibilities of the court. What they said was, if you want to hold him under for forty eight hours and see if he craps the stuff out, that's one thing. If you want to invade the body. That was considered to be a, a on, an unlawful search and seizure, a Fourth Amendment problem. I think that this puts the emergency physician at risk. Absolutely. This is way over the line. If, if, if I was the doc who ordered those things, I'd be afraid. First of all, <laughs> the fact that they build them is still incredible to me. But secondly, you allowed a patient to be violated... Aggressively. Uh, aggressively. This isn't drawing blood. This isn't getting a, an alcohol level. And it was done under under your auspices. I think this guy's in big trouble. And uh, you, you realize this is a volitional act. If there is a lawsuit, his insurance company will not defend him on this case. Well, may not. We this May not. And, you know, they, could, they can take it by saying, uh, listen, we have a warrant from a judge for our a search of this person, but I don't think any judge would think that this was a reasonable search and seizure of nothing. No, we're going to have to follow this one, Rick, because the emergency doc is involved and we want to keep our listeners uh, aware of what's going on. This attorney, by the way, the same attorney, had a similar but slightly less egregious case. This, this, this attorney specializes in invasions in of the body. body yeah, right. That's right. That's like the body snatchers, right? We got another one. Go ahead. Yeah. A third case involves a woman crossing into El Paso from Mexico. Is this immediately suspicious? Probably, yes. A drug-sniffing dog, again, alerted U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agents. The woman was strip-searched at the crossing and then taken to a hospital. She had vaginal and anal probes a forced bowel movement. By the way, (laughs) bowel movements have been allowed. A forced bowel movement. Uh, X-rays and scans. No drugs were found. Now, the ACLU, this has become a cause celebra for them. They're, they're filing action on this. And the question, again, is when, when the police come in and say, Doctor, do X, what are you going to do? I mean, because there's a warrant does not mean that you have to comply if you feel it violates certain basic human rights. And I, I think it's very hard to say that this uh, that probes and anal probes and that sort of thing don't pose at least some potential harm to the patient. Well, do you remember the, a few, well, it was a good number of years back, this picture of a doctor in a police car who refused to do these kinds of things and they hauled them off. Right. And so it was kind of like, do you become the agent of the State. Police and state kind of thing to this degree. We know that we can be asked to do a blood alcohol, and as you acknowledge, it's not that big a deal. 
Yeah, Rick, we are the agent of the state up to the limits of the state. For example, you and I are required to report child abuse, elderly abuse, crimes of violence. We are. It is mandatory that we report. The question here is, reporting is one thing. Putting a, a the patient at potential harm is quite something else. And I think that in any good argument here for the ACLU, they're going to go back and reference those previous cases about using the NG tube to suck out the contents of the stomach. And when you talk about the ACLU, they're not obviously going after the doctor who participated. They're going after the agency through which this occurred. But I can I can see the patient going after the doctor. Rick, of course, if they get if they get a a judgment that says uh, this was wrong, do you don't you think that this person would bring a civil action against that doctor for uh, embarrassment, and- humiliation, all these sorts of things would come up? Undo search and seizure. Yes, uh, yeah, <laughs> but in a civil action, mm-hmm. can only sue for damages. You you can only sue for money. You can't sue to take the doctor taken out and beaten with a hose or any of that kind of stuff. Here's the other thing they could do, however, is report this action to the state medical board. Oh, I think and, uh, yeah, I, yeah, that's a good point. And and have him brought up it for his fitness to practice medicine. I don't think either of these cases are done. And we're going to have to keep people up to date on what's happening here, Rick. This isn't uh, this isn't a good thing. Okay, let's go on to some. Uh, we, these are not letters; these are emails, but we call them letters, kind of. Yes, thing, you know, letters. Actually, I rec- we got a recording of that. But I know it, you it, did. The quality is so crappy that we're not including it here. This is um. I, I don't know whether I should use this doctor's name. Or no, not. Don't just don't do it. Yep. Okay, here you go. This doctor says that their hospital has an ironclad trauma transfer agreement with one of their sister hospitals. They will accept any injury without question. This being the case, can they skip talking to an accepting physician? Now, I had a response, and you had a response. And right. my, my response was, I would not mess around with CMS. Yeah. Have the trauma surgeons authorize the emergency physicians at the other hospital to, to accept? Talk to some doctor there. What if the hospital's got an internal disaster? What if the CAT scan machine is down? What if all the doctors are in surgery for the next three days? Right. Yeah, no. It, whenever we say we'll take anybody, that's depending upon the situation at that moment in time. Ironclad. Ironclad. I, 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 I don't quite understand that, and they need to have plan B at some point in time. You and I pretty much agree on the response here. The other thing is there is such a thing as courtesy. Would you actually send a patient to another hospital without informing the ER well, that guess, you're sending a patient? I guess the idea is they could call the nurses or let's say somebody's coming, but I don't think that that's, that is not the way the EMTALA rules work. Right, Exactly. Let's see here. Uh, we got another one. This, oh, this, these are a couple of tough ones. I know that. Let me say. So this doctor got suspicious and checked their state narcotic database and suspected that a patient he was seeing was forging prescriptions. It happened twice to him, two different patients. He acknowledges that there may have been other explanations, but the question is his. Here are the two questions. When is it legal to contact law enforcement without facing possible HIPAA violations if you suspect a crime, in this case, the forging of prescriptions? I, I, I think that, I think that uh, if you're dealing with law enforcement 
and you have some 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 evidence, some proof that he is forging prescriptions, i.e., if you're called by the local pharmacy, and I've had this happen, say, Doctor Henry, did you write for a thousand per cadan? <laughs> and and that's my usual amount. That's my <laughs> usual amount. Yeah, I I think that not only do you have obligation to report which you know may be harmful to other people. So I don't think there's a problem with that. Just checking the state database doesn't say that, that there's legal activity going on. Well, he, he has a suspicion that there is. Uh, it's kind of like a suspicion of child abuse kind of thing. And so he wonders <laughs> whether he can blow the whistle on this person and have the police come talk to this person about uh, this concern when there is the privacy the HIPAA thing. all under- 50 states have a, a a law that talks about things like elder abuse child abuse and suspicion is uh, suspicion constitutes reasonable grounds in fact if it's done in good faith you are protected from actions against you if it's done in good faith not punishing somebody not looking to for vengeance you're protected I do not believe that there is such a statute of suspicion of forging prescription. I don't, I've never seen a case like that. And I think you better be a little bit careful unless you have some actual proof that this is going on. Suspicion, I don't know what that means. Well, that was the heart of his question, doctor. Yeah, yeah, I understand. (laughs) So you have artfully evaded the answer. Well, the, the answer is this. Unless I have serious relevant grounds, I'm not calling anybody because you have released a doctor-patient relationship uh, without uh, proof that there is uh, potential harm to that patient or the society at large going on here. Dan's been appointed the head of an urgent care center owned by a hospital. He's been told Emtala does not apply to their urgent care center. Therefore, they can refuse care if a person is unable to pay. He wants to know about their obligations to patients that need immediate care, bleeding wounds, chest pain, anaphylaxis, asthma. So I think that, yes, this is one that we pass to our Imtala expert, Dr. Bitterman. You know, we're abusing that poor man. Uh, Did you ever think about that, Rick? He is the world's expert on this, and we're abusing him, but... Let's well, make sure we frame the question correctly. Yeah, exactly. I didn't get quite through uh, Dan's uh, issues here. He said their risk management team said call an ambulance for these people who've got chest pain, asthma attacks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He is concerned about what ethical and or legal requirements exist for treating unstable or quasi-stable patients at an urgent care center with capabilities of at least stabilizing or initially treating uh, patients for who can't pay. Well, but- Let's take Mtala out of it a little bit. He's, yeah. he's right. If they're billing under the usual codes, not emergency medicine codes, if this is just a, an, an offshoot of their emergency medicine department and they're charging emergency medicine rates, be careful because it may extend to you. But let, let's take Mtala out of it. Let's say they just bring action saying, you had the ability to stop my son's bleeding artery. Or give him a shot of epinephrine for his asthma attack. Yeah, or whatever. 
you know what? I think that they would have a reasonable case against the urgent care for not acting as any reasonable physician would to stabilize the situation before transfer. Prudent. Prudent. And you you know what? If if I was sitting on that jury, I would take a I would take a dim view of a doctor who didn't do at least simple things. You turned your back on this patient who needed an ambulance to go to the who couldn't breathe? Yeah, yeah. I see I I don't think that makes any good sense. So to say we're just gonna call an ambulance, not touch them. You know, I wouldn't do a workup for their abdominal pain. I wouldn't work them up for uh, for an MI. But there are going to be some situations in which the patient might be helped by some momentary action. Take MTAL out of it. Just make it a plain old lawsuit case. I think that they, they could give you trouble on this one. Now, what did Dr. Bitterman have to say? Uh, he had a rather extensive uh, in, in a legally way you know yeah, he could yeah. they get paid by the word right you know, they know that yeah yeah but he had a, a two-part answer so why don't you hit up on on uh the first part uh, part of this and by the way dr bitterman is um available to review any of your intolerant related matters he is the consummate authority he is also an attorney and uh we and i mentioned before we have seen some of these cases where the attorneys, the the local attorneys, charge a hundred thousand dollars to abort what they believe to be, and nothing ever comes of it. Right, Doctor Bitterman's your man. Dr. Yeah, he is. and then he doesn't pay us anything, but he is more than generous with his advice. Yeah. So, what did Bob have to say? He basically says it's easy for hospitals to avoid application of Mtala to their urgent care centers. He says, just bill the centers as office-based practices. Whoa, he said exactly what I said, which is, if your billing is an emergency department, be careful. But if your billing is an office-based practice and not you're not legally structured as a part of the emergency department, you're probably okay. This can get you off. But reimbursement um, is higher for the emergency departments than office-based practices. If Amtala does not apply, then under federal law, uh, the urgent care can deny medical services to anyone who can't pay the copay or listed charges. However, be sure to check that no state law or state licensure acts bear on the interactions of this urgent care. There you go. And part two of that was, and you already addressed it, and this is a matter of just do the right thing. Um you should do whatever you can to stabilize any identified emergency condition and transfer to the most appropriate facility, which may not necessarily be your mothership hospital down the street there, Chief. Anything else will subject you to market adverse public relations at, at, at the minimum, as you suggested, Greg. Ethics charges from your state medical board, man, you hit this right on the nail. Uh, expulsion from membership in national organizations, ASIP, I would hope, and potential civil litigation for failure to stabilize the patient within your license capability and capacity to do so. I hope that the people who are listening, and we have lots of you folks out there who have been listening for years and years, you should have been able to analyze this exactly the way we did, that, you know, there's some logic in in the law. I know you don't believe that all the time, but... 
take Amtala out of it and just say, what would reasonable people do here? And that's essentially what Bob has just told us. Yeah, he said there's no problem with enlisting EMS to transport the patient, but but it should be done at the medically appropriate time and to the most appropriate facility. Don't let your mothership hospital dictate where to send the patient, such as always to the mothership or uh, other affiliated hospitals. Yes, exactly. Please don't do what risk management tells you to do. Do what you know to be the best interest of the patient, and in other words, be a real doctor. Yeah. Oh, what what a surprise. More than that, if you're working in an urgent care, the number of these cases over a year is pittance. It's small change, and uh, it's not worth your soul, (laughs) the reputation of the the organization. This is the kind of thing They wouldn't take care of me. They wouldn't take care of me. They turned me away. Film at 11. <laughs> this is exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Okay, next next comment here. Uh, Carl writes and says, a similar question to the, uh, the, the last uh, person who inquired, what to do with patients who go to a, uh, an urgent care but really need to be in an ED? Uh, he was told that the standard of care is the same as in a doctor's office. That's what that's what di- dictates the standard for the urgent care. I think to a very great degree, I would agree with that. So let's take it from that view. If you saw someone, if you're good old Dr. Jones and you're running an office and somebody comes in who should be in the emergency department, what would you do, Rick? Yeah, you do the best you can kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, they also point out here that uh, he, I think he, this is in, is in his email. They aren't expected to stabilize these patients as would be required prior to transporting a patient from the ED. Correct. Right. Do they need to go by ambulance? They need to go whatever is medically appropriate. That doesn't mean they have to go by ambulance. They can go to car, by car if it's medically <laughs> reasonable. Well, let's again, let's pull ourselves away. If you had to sit in front of 12 citizens picked from the voters' rolls, who, who constitute a jury, who pay a lot of money for health care, um, and then they're about to pay a whole lot more money for health care. I don't think they'd like it if you didn't use reasonable judgment at that moment in time. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, uh, Brent wrote a couple of uh, questions regarding the Argus issue regarding head CTs. Uh, he said... Uh, getting head CTs is, he said, we said, getting head CTs is defensive medicine. But if there's a problem, he claims that the plaintiff's attorney could say, with the ease of getting a CAT scan these days, why would you not order such an easily obtained test to rule out a, such a significant injury, even if it were positive in a small number of cases? He was asked this very question by an attorney. Doctor, it's just a matter of checking the box. You, you you chose to put this patient in jeopardy because you didn't get the... It's right down the... It would have been done in 10 minutes. Yes, it could have been done in 10 minutes. And we could have subjected that young person to 450 times the radiation of a chest X-ray, uh, all the other things that are a problem. The other thing is because things are easy and it's available doesn't mean we do them. I could have done a CBC on him. There were probably the same indications. I, you know, I could have done a PSA on a 50-year-old guy with a complaint of a cough. I could do a lot of things, but there has to be some reasonable basis to do things in medicine. 
it's not that we say, we never say, well, it's easy, just go ahead and do it. Well, we're here, why don't we take out your appendix, too? You know, you could have appendicitis someday. I think at some point in time, lawyer-type thinking can't dominate science-type business. Well, you know, this is kind of interesting because a couple of years ago, we took a moderate amount of flack for having a very successful plaintiff's attorney um, be interviewed by us while we were over doing one of our Hawaii courses. Yes. And, you know, he did take, honestly, he did take this this approach. I know but, that. But he also was involved with cases where there was a screw-up. Well, he, he was one of those guys who takes very few cases. They're all big money cases. He researches them. And the last thing he ever wants to do is try a case in court. Um, he was he was a very talented, very witty guy, Rick. And um, I wouldn't want to have to oppose, having opposed many attorneys, I don't think I'd want to spend too much time against him. Well, this guy was hugely successful. He lives in Hawaii half the year. Yeah. And upstate New York the other half. So shoot me, because I, I don't think upstate New York is McKinnon B. Like right now, <laughs> December, no thank you. The, the, he also drew this out analogously to chest pain. Uh, do you want to do the chest pain thing there, Greg? Yeah. Uh, you know, that is a similar question. Why should we take such an aggressive approach towards chest pain patients but take a less aggressive approach uh, to getting head CTs? Well, the answer, I think, is very clear. We're not taking a more aggressive approach. We're dealing with a completely different chief complaint where the physical examination doesn't tell you anything in chest pain. The physical examination and how the patient's behaving and what we expect to find is determined by the neurological exam on patients. The brain and the heart, although it may be frightening to some people, are quite different uh, or, uh, organs, and that we really do approach them differently. I don't think we use a more aggressive approach. What we, what we say is the patient's symptomatology and the physical exam, what do you learn by listening to the chest on most chest pain patients, Rick? I'm, I'm, I'm just asking a well, question I guess, here. I guess he's taking the point of view that these chest pain evaluations are complex. The patient is there, you get markers and the EKG, you do a history and physical, you observe them for you know four or five, six, seven hours, then you get another set, and then after they pass that uh, uh, period of observation, then you do some kind of imaging or stressing or some other kind of thing. It's a big freaking deal. When he said, it's just checking that head CT box, doctor. That's it. Yeah. Done. False sense of security. Because you've checked that, and the kid has gone down and, and bumped his head, uh, does that mean you're not going to let him play in the football game uh, well, next you know, week? You know, I think some of this comes up to be a moral obligation. I mean, yeah, we could check that CT box, but we have a responsibility to say that was not indicated. The child had no vomiting. It occurred six hours ago. The child is happy and playful. The neurologic exam is normal. There is no indication. I can't be ordering a $1,000 test for you because you just on a whim want it. Uh, excuse me. 
I don't want you using the phrase a thousand dollar test. No, I, I, I mean, yes, that was. I have no I reason I, I to put never, your child's future I, in jeopardy. I would have never said that. I'm hoping you. I would have never sir. said. That. But uh, uh, that's what I would have thought. But the other <laughs> thing is, is, is that, and then when you have to pull out the ace, the ace is, if this was my child, I certainly wouldn't do a cat scan. Exactly. Pull that ace. Right. Play, play it. Well, and and you can say, you know, considering the child's background and everything, any decrease in his mental functioning would not be a good thing. Uh, We we need to keep... He's he's marginal right now. You want to kick him over the edge? (laughs) Yeah, right. I guess you won't have to worry about college tuition. There you go. Right, exactly. All right, we got one here. Um, The doctor called a patient back as a part of their patient satisfaction program. That's really interesting because we had a question today... Uh, about the same kind of thing where doctors are obligated as a part of the hospital's or the department's policies for patient satisfaction or whatever, they're calling patients back, um, whether they be random cases or whether they're what. But in any case, this is kind of starting off the same way. So anyway, it was a patient seen by, uh, by him for back pain. On making the call... The patient told the doctor that she had significant nausea and vomiting from the narcotic prescribed, the uh, 20 oxycontins. Uh, The assumption (laughs) by the patient was that the nausea and vomiting were caused by the medication. Right. We don't know that that's true. What we know is that's what she thinks happened. Ultimately, the resolution was to call in a prescription for an anti-emetic by this doctor. All the documentation was perfect, including the advice to return to the emergency department. That's he key. Quest- it says, is this an acceptable practice? Will this be covered by my malpractice insurance should there be an adverse outcome? He, um, he thanks us in advice in advance for our sage advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, he obviously doesn't know us that well. Uh, understand this. Everybody's malpractice policy is unique. You ought to see what's covered and not covered. By the way, he did something here which I don't like. What you ought to do is if they're unhappy, just bring them back, no charge, see them again, and write the antiemetic. He assumed that, that she knew why she had her nausea and vomiting. How do you know not, it's not her early appendicitis? I don't know these things. Well, you know, it's a, it's a tough one. This is, gets into who's covering whose butt here kind of thing because you could all of you say listen i'm going to get you some advancetron we're going to give it a try if, it, if you're not feeling better in you know three or four hours please come in i hope that that's the way it's written on the chart and the idea about coming in in three or four hours because uh, again you've practiced medicine on the phone and, you know, you and I aren't that good when the patient's in front of us, Rick. On the phone is very difficult. Well, I guess the issue there is they'll always say, well, you could have done a history on the phone and it might have been fine, but you did not did do, do any physical. physical exam. And so by current standards, that was an inadequate evaluation so that there was some risk here. Okay, Gregory, I think that that is the end of our um, emails, and uh, it's case time. It's case time. Uh, I'm, I, I got to get uh, a little time on my soapbox uh, just for one minute. I want to let you know that the, um, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development 
uh, came out with their reports this week uh, as to life expectancy, male um, expectancy, female expectancy, and infant mortality. And you'll be happy to know that America dropped from 17th five years ago to 20th to this year. We're 24th. (laughs) And the only area we led was what? Cost per patient. The next country down the list was one half what we spend on health care. One half. It's, it's, it's like nobody's getting the picture or the message here. Obamacare, it, it, the health care reform debate didn't do anything about health or care. It talked about the money. But nobody asked a question about why the hell are we spending money on these things? The other thing is, I, I unfortunately got to watch the usual nitwits, the talking heads on Sunday, uh, and they all talk about quality health care. Well, now they can get quality health care. You know what? I think that people don't realize that sometimes more is not better in health care. If a child is fine at age seven, why does he need to be examined by a pediatrician at age eight? I don't think you can prove that. There are countries that don't do that. So I've gotten that off my chest now, you Rick. You feel better? I feel better. Thank you. Are we, we are, okay? We are 24th. Who's number one? Who's the best country in the world? J- Japan. No, it's it, uh, in this one, it's the Swiss. Oh, The Swiss gotcha. are the best. But, you know, they, basically they sit around, make cuckoo clocks, and uh, be healthy. You know, drink cocoa. And drink cocoa, yeah. And if you actually look at the money per person spent, they are... They are really in in the uh, less per, per patient group. They really don't do a lot of things, and um, they seem to be doing just fine. Well, there you go. Um, you want to do a case or two? Yeah, we got to do some cases. <clears throat> I'm going to do one now that uh, carries with it just a little bit of um, ego and pride. Why? Because I was the expert witness in this case. It had to do with a uh, a case where I testified. Is this tooting your own horn, Doctor? No, it's not. <laughs> if, 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 and if I don't toot my horn... Who's going to toot it? I was no, going to say... Let's not go there. Yeah, it's not going to be tooted. It's just not part of the deal. In any event, what we want to talk a little bit was about expert witness. Because we had a case here where we had people talking about neurologic injury who wouldn't know the brain and spinal cord from their butt. I mean, it was very clear what happened in this case. The science is clear in this case. It was a spinal cord injury some 12 hours before they brought him into the emergency department. He had a central cord syndrome, a contusion to the cord. It was, cl- it was classic. It was textbook. Steroids weren't going to help it. In fact, unroofing the cord wasn't going to help it. Now, there were a lot of things that happened in this case which are odd. And the neurosurgeon, uh, you know, he was about 10 hours in getting there and all these other sorts of things. But there was nothing the emergency department, and I'm pretty good at neuro stuff, if I'd been sitting there, the kid would be exactly the same, which is quadriplegic. Is this a good thing? No, that's not the issue in the case. The issue in the case is, did the emergency physician meet the standard of care and did any violation of that? caused his condition today or worsened or worsened his condition and the answer is none of that happened now 
it just so happened that the the hospital a bunch of other people had settled out with uh, the parties involved but the emergency physician was left in the case and uh, I'm happy to tell you that we won uh, no cause of action against the emergency physician but if you had to sit there and listen to the buffoonery which was being put forward by by the various uh, councils and and their experts experts it would have driven you crazy I mean, it appears that it has affected you. Somewhat. Yes, it has affected me. But uh, we did we did win the case, and uh, I think that uh, it was a uh, absolute it was absolute craziness. And uh, well, doctor, I, I'm glad that we prevailed. Would you view this as egregious testimony? I would. Yes, yes. I would. I would. I would consider it egregious, and and uh, some action needs to be taken here. And. You know, I may not be the one doing it. You want, but me, to, you want me to submit the, uh, the uh, complaint for you? Yeah, we could do, we could do that. <laughs> you write it up now, for me. I'll sign it. <clears throat> now, let, the reason I presented that case was because we have had some small victories. Ta- Tondrio versus Hans, uh, Michigan Supreme Court case, uh, September twenty third, two thousand thirteen. This the uh, Michigan Supreme Court reversed the a court of appeals decision that found plaintiff's expert's opinion reliable, they turned it around and said, you know what? That guy sounds to me like he's giving his own opinion and there's no basis for the science. And I think that this is where we're going to start to turn the tide is on the quality of the expert testimony. I mean, the Michigan Supreme Court said, you know what? There's no... A significant body of evidence or you know it's not like there's 30 percent of doctors who agree with this guy you basically submitted him because he had an md after facep after his name and uh nothing else of importance i think this is a i think this is a good case and a good win for us that are we uh, going to submit his name too <clears throat> well a twofer we could get a twofer on this one and it wouldn't be bad so now, you have a court here basically saying the testimony of an expert is was not supportable not supportable and what they did was they looked at uh, both sides experts and what they represented what they had to say and said you know what the appeals court here was a little loose with who they let talk on this issue. One thing we have to be very careful about in emergency medicine is people from other specialties trying to set the standard of care for emergency medicine. I really don't want to hear from a neurosurgeon what we ought to do in the emergency department with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Well, that's certainly not the uh, national standard in that, well, you know, in California, only an emergency physician can testify on behalf of or against, but other states, you know, you don't. That's, that's state apply. state of uh, Kansas. If if you breathe regularly or irregularly and have a license, then the jury gets to decide the weight of the evidence that person brings. And this is this has been in a lot of states. California was lucky. It, well, no, you weren't lucky. You worked to get this at the California legislature. And, and we need it in more places, and uh, it's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. Um, <clears throat> shall we do another case here? Yes. Should we acknowledge your, your data source there, doctor? 
I think so. I think it's perfectly reasonable because I used to subscribe to that as well. It's a little expensive, but this doctor, this the person who puts this together is very generous with uh, allowing people to, as long as you kind of cite it. As a matter yeah. of fact, I went into uh, one of the pediatric journals where the um, Steve Selps does cases. Yes, yes. The vast majority of his cases come out of the same book. Yes, exactly. They come out of medical malpractice, verdicts, settlements, and experts. This is the October 2013 issue. Yeah, the idea here is to um, educate people. It's not. It's. It. I don't think it's kind of, you know, where you only you, Greg, can read these to yourself, kind of thing. This right. is to get the word out. Absolutely. And you know, when I I look. I look for two reasons. I look at all the emergency medicine cases. I want to see what my friends are saying in court. <laughs> yeah, they list all the... Oh, uh, they list your name. Yeah. And, you know, your name's in there in big letters. They, they, you can also read the psychiatric cases, which are always fun, because they only get sued for two things, sex with their patients and suicide. And so it, just in case you ever want to have an interesting uh, sort of uh, funky, funny day... Uh, read the site cases, which are filed around the country. Amazingly fun. They're just really good. Okay, let's do another case from them, because I think there's a few here which, again, bring us uh, some insight. Failure to diagnose meningitis blamed for death. That's a well, bad thing. Well, you know, uh, that's kind of interesting, because when you <clears throat> think about it, when's the last time you saw a meningitis case? Well, in all, in all fairness, uh, I haven't seen kids for a few years, but uh, when I was young in medicine, you and I were young, we'd see a kid with bacterial meningitis once a week kind of thing. Well, that's, that's pushing it, but they're now extraordinarily rare in the, in the average age. Unbelievably rare. I hadn't diagnosed one, uh, bacterial meningitis, in probably nine years or ten years. Yeah, well, the, it was these kids in college and, and you know, who had, hadn't gotten their meningococcal vaccine right. kind of thing. But now, go to it. All right. What we've got is a Missouri case. I'm not going to tell you the answer till we get done here. The plaintiff's decedent was, a, was uh, 53 years of age, was taken by his wife to a particular hospital in a- April of 2008. Complaint of nausea, vomiting, right ear pain, dizziness, and severe headache. The doctor diagnosed the man with an ear infection, prescribed pain medication, anti-nausea medication. He was unable to speak or walk out under his own power at discharge. Not a good sign. This is not a good sign. That's a heck of an ear infection. The man's wife could not get him out of the car upon arriving home. The wife left him in the car for about two hours, hoping he would pick up, uh, checking on him every 15 minutes. Well, I told you, you can't make this stuff up, Rick. You can't make it up. Checking on him every 15 minutes while waiting for what she thought were the effects of the medication to, to, you know, so he'd get better. The next morning... The wife felt that the man's breathing was unusual. She called the hospital and was instructed to call 911. So they took him. Upon arrival, uh, the EMTs found the man to be in critical condition. He was intubated and taken to the hospital. And then he was actually at that hospital for a short time, and they life-flighted him to a major university center. 
um, which was uh, not very far away. Uh, so <clears throat> he does not do well at the major university center and is, is dead within about four days. Wife uh, brings an action. What do, you, what do you think happened here, Rick? Any more information you need to know? I don't think so. I mean, this this sounds, although I, it, I tell you, it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback. You know that these cases are in this book called medical malpractice kind of thing. So yeah. you know that there's a, there's some things that were, got screwed up here. And uh, the issue is who won? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what happened was that the a very good lawyering brought this case to basically blaming the victim, this wife who left him in the car, could have brought him back. Why'd you do that? You knew he wasn't right, sort of thing. And uh, it came out as a defense verdict oh, for geez. the emergency physician. Man. <laughs> hey, oh. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not saying anything uh, right or wrong or whatever. I just think, however, it's one of those odd cases that you and I sitting here talking about it think, well, this is kind of a slam dunk. It wasn't in this case. Well, you know, it just as presented the most crudest of the facts. I mean, yes. an earache, an ear infection, well, that can hurt. Uh, an ear infection causing vertigo. Uh, now we're talking about not middle ear anymore. We're talking about inner ear. Right. Something is progressing beyond where it's supposed to be kind of thing. And then a headache on top of it, The to, and the, to go to an emergency department, and, yeah, I do think that uh, there are these cases where there's always this percentage of culpability. And I guess this is one of those states where it's all or nothing. Because in many other states, they would have said, okay, the wife was 70% responsible, but the doctor was 30% responsible, where they, they That's right. weigh the relative. That's right. Yes, your contribution to the, this to the bad the, outcome. This an all or nothing state. <laughs> it must have been all or nothing. Okay, let's let's uh, talk about one which which is a case which you and I deal with this uh, particular problem all the time. I won't give you the outcome for until uh, we get there, but the plaintiff went to an emergency room in December of 2007 with severe back pain. He was examined and discharged with advice to return if the pain worsened. The plaintiff returned to the emergency department several times and saw his primary care physician uh, several times over the next few days. Uh, do I get to ask you what the temperature of the patient was? <laughs> oh, I, I... Oh, oh, you fox. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, these, are just, these are just no-brainers. Well, I, if... we'd, like to th- we'd like to think that. But here's, here's again, we're going back to the old Henry Law if they've been to say, if they've seen three healthcare providers, Strike three and you're out. You're oh, out. You're, you're, you're in. You're in. You're in. I don't care why you're there. There's something not right. Just stick them somewhere. Have somebody look at them. Have your mother look at them. Have anybody look at them. But what happens is, I think we start to get <clears throat> this. This had everything wrong. We had a low back pain patient, which is usually not our favorite in the emergency department. Multiple visits. They'd seen their own doctor. A lot of the testimony was he was. They were whining to him. Well, what are you doing here? You've got a doctor of your own. That sounds awfully familiar. Oh, 
whenever you hear those words come out of your mouth, just kind of smack yourself around and say, you know what, that ain't right. <clears throat> By the way, it is noted, the, the plaintiff also had a fever. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and was found to have a 6 by 10 inch induration on their back, which was described as red and hot at one of the visits. I think I'm coming close to the doctor. Now, have I read this before? Have we talked in the, you know, before about this case? Anyway, the only thing I would point out, and by the way, the diagnosis is? Spinal epidural abscess. Of course. Um, and, I, and, and, of course, there was a, they did not take this all the way to jury because they saw they were losing badly. And so a confidential settlement was uh, uh, taken. Know, and, and the, uh, but the, uh, what actually happened was one of the emergency docs who was at the end of the line who, who made the diagnosis, he was let out of the – he was essentially That dropped. seems uh, very fair. It, it seems very fair. <laughs> But there's going to be, of course, the hospital, some other docs, the family doc, all these people involved, and and the damages here huge. are real. They're huge, and th- and it's so predictable that these things don't get better on them on their own. And the real manifestation <laughs> is when they come in paralyzed, back or pain, essentially it, paralyzed, back pain and a temperature, multiple visits. I mean, if I had a freshman, if I had a first-year resident who didn't know what to do with this case, I, I'd, I'd wonder what the hell. I guess one of the problems is is that, um, and we we brought it up at our conference today. Unless you are intellectually aware of this diagnosis, you'll never make it. Yes, that's and, correct. Uh, I I must, you know, I recanted the story that in my department one time I was just walking through. And there was a back pain patient, and I looked at the chart, and the guy had 100.4 fever, which is technically, you know, right at, you know, that's a fever, but, you know. Right, well, that, that that's, you and know. I, I said to the physician who was there, have you considered whether this patient has a spinal epidural abscess? And he said to me, and I'll, 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 I remember like it was yesterday, he said, say what? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, God. You know, um, so he wasn't familiar with this diagnosis, and this diagnosis is coming up more and more frequently because there's more and more people who are immunocompromised. There's more and more people who have steel and other artificial body part, you know, parts in them that predispose to these infections occurring. <clears throat> so this is, if anything, coming to be more common than less. Yes. I have uh, one last case, which we will do, because it illustrates nothing changes. It's the same stuff all the time. A man was just discharged from an emergency department um, who, uh, by the way, had had a previously abnormal EKG. And so when the emergency doc, (laughs) middle-aged man with chest pain, had had a previously abnormal EKG, which somebody had looked at and said, eh, it's minor nonspecific changes. So he's back in with some more nonspecific changes. We've got to get over the fact that normal and nonspecific changes have nothing to do with each other. You know, we, we talked with Amal Matu about this, and he said, you know, whenever they say he had a normal EKG and this sort of thing, he looks at the EKGs. 
on 10 cases, he looked at those and said, uh, you know, seven of the 10 are abnormal. And somebody eventually said it was abnormal. And I, I think we're sometimes too casual about deciding that it's a minimal, not, I always love the phrase, nonspecific STT wave change. I, I, I don't know what that means exactly. And, and how we decide we get to ignore certain parts of the information base. But it's relatively easy, even if it is a stone-cold normal EKG. 45, chest pain, troponins. It doesn't matter, frankly, if the troponins are normal. Yeah. This could be the first manifestation of acute coronary syndrome, angina pectoris, where all of those things can be perfectly normal. Well, you're talking about a 45. This guy was 56. So oh, there you go. He he's, he's, one, about, he's got one foot, one in, the foot in the grave. Anyway, we, we, we can get rid of him. But the, uh, uh, the unfortunate part of this, this case was you've got all of this testimony from family saying he's never like this. We've never seen him like this. Could it be a heart attack, doctor? And they're giving the reassurance um, that with nonspecific changes, it can't be a heart attack. You know, what? this isn't going to go anywhere. This, and uh, <clears throat> uh, by the way, the electrocardiogram taken at that time was abnormal with, with read by the cardiologist the next day as ST segment depression in multiple leads. Well, you know, there we do have a paper or two in the, uh, not recently, about the ability of emergency physicians to read EKGs, and it is entirely consistent with Amol's findings that we frequently make mistakes, frequently, on just this finding, that we don't know the subtle differences between nonspecific and abnormal. We really don't. So, and, and, but the nicest thing about it is it, it is irrelevant. It's the history is, you know, very incriminating here. Yep. The age is incriminating here. Why don't you give the guy a break for crying out loud? You don't know that he doesn't have a uh, coronary artery disease uh, just because of the EKG finding <clears throat> for crying out loud. I, you know, I, I think that uh, the more things change, the more they're the same. Chest pain is still a bad problem for us. Uh, how much time do we have, Rick? Can we do another case? Let's see. Uh, we have, Doctor, we have about uh, 10 minutes. You're not going to like this one. This was a <laughs> I, I man. Don't, I don't like a lot of them. Well, some of them seem so yeah. obvious. It's like, geez, Louise. Yeah, this one I don't like particularly. This was a, a man with schizophrenia brought to the emergency room, disoriented, psychotic, due to not taking his medications. Is Again, that, is that the way that works? I, I guess that's the way it is. Aggressiveness uh, causes use of forceful restraint uh, so they could administer sedation. Man claims, rest after he gets better, man claims the restraint method caused cervical fractures, oh, incomplete tetraplegia with neurogenic uh, bowel and bladder and spasticity. Sounds like they were rather aggressive in uh, restraining $2.8 million dollar verdict. Why don't you like this? Uh, here's what I don't like about it. <clears throat> man was harmed. What I, here, here's the rule thing you got to take home. You can't halfway, and, and, and a lot of the 
testimony here had to do with the fact that one person was doing it, then the guy was getting overwhelmed, so somebody else came in to do it. Well, that's not the way you That's not the somebody. way you do it. And I think that's the point we need to make here. And with a $2.8 million verdict in the state of Ohio, we can, <clears throat> we can emphasize this fact. You don't, have, you don't have to do any procedure. You don't have to put in a chest tube. You don't have to do a spinal tap. Restraint is a procedure. The team is organized. People take the limb, the, their limb of choice, and you do it rapidly, completely. And effectively. Effectively, because the last thing you want is to get in a one-on-one fight with somebody. I don't win many of those. Or the person falls <laughs> off the gurney. Well, that. funny you should say that. I, I'm psychic today. I don't need this book. I can, <laughs> you, I can, I yeah. can make this up. I don't need no friggin' book. Right. In, in any event, the point we would make is um, <clears throat> if you're going to restrain, restrain. Don't threaten to do it. Get organized. Get in and get it done because it only constitutes danger not only to the patient, which happened in this case, but what if he'd hauled off and got a good right punch to some nurse's face? Um, I think that we, we have to kind of bring this thing together that if you're going to act, act. Well, see, you, do you ever see these shows where they <clears throat> go into prisons and you know follow prisoners and yeah. when they act out, sometimes they have to restrain these guys? Yeah. They go in with like six or seven guys kind of thing. With pads on, you know, right? Exactly. Um, because an, an effective restraining process that is the least likely to injure anybody. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh absolutely. When you're going to do it, do it. And get it done, because if you're not going to do that, you're going to have a big problem. We got time for wine of the month? Uh, yes, we do, sir. Okay, because I have to recommend the issue 207 of um, Robert Parker's Wine Advocate. Is that where you get your legal cases? Yeah, I get my legal <laughs> cases looks, from there, too. They look the same. Was that yellow Yeah, they, they look kind of the same. Uh, in any event, I do take a lot of suggestions from here in, in ordering, buying, and uh, tasting wines. Parker himself wrote the article, which went back to Napa. And Parker, who is a world expert on, on uh, for example, French wines, says he thinks the California wines are better. <laughs> and he says that right to your face. Let me tell you, however, California has gone way over the top with some of these Napa wines. As soon as it says Napa and not Sonoma on it, they double the price. That's just what they do. They charge way too much money for this stuff. But then again, he's nice enough to to uh, to look around and find us some great bargains. So let's look for a couple of these things that you ought to be looking at here. One of them is the Hess Collection Winery. Now, uh, Hess Collection Winery, the 2003 Cabernet Sauvignon, fabulous wine. Again, he rates this at a level which is... Up there, at the stars. Is it expensive? Well, 90 bucks. Yes, that's expensive. Well, now, wait a minute. For, for the wino guys, I yeah. mean, that's probably no big deal, but I'm not spending yeah, well, the, dollars on something. Okay. Because right. I don't appreciate it. Uh, Rick. <laughs> I, I'm a slug. <laughs> yeah, you're a slug. We get you an Iron City beer, and you're just fine. Uh, another one that, uh, that, that I've had, which I think has um, come up dramatically, is uh, Duckhorn Vineyards, the 2003 Cabernet. Um, 
Uh, again, this is one of those things that the big guys are saying, terrific. There's no reason to spend 700 800 $900 for these things. These are rated just as well. And California now has, they've, they've reached the price point, Rick. They've got some $1,000 wines. Uh, I think that's affected. If you're, you are going to turn is, it into urine. This is the emperor's new clothes. This is the emperor's new clothes. So you know what? Save your money. Buy the duck horn. And, uh, or uh, even Stag's Leap has gone a little crazy. I always liked them early on. And uh, now instead of having $40 a bottle of wines, uh, they got $100 a bottle of Well, I'm going to tell you about a movie that you should see. And I don't know that you've seen it, but I, you will absolutely love it. It's, uh, it's in Netflix. And it's called Soma, S-O-M-A. Dr. Bukata, it's actually called SOM, S-O-M-M. Mm-hmm. Which is the kind of a slang term for sommelier. And this is about six or seven young fellows applying to take and taking the master sommelier exam, of which typically this is an hour and a half movie about how they immerse themselves in the study of wine to move up to the, this is the ultimate class of sommelier, the master. Mm-hmm. And um, it was they followed about five or six guys. God, I've never seen such devotion and study, and they, they shut out pretty much everything else out of their lives. And they follow these guys through this exam that it's an oral exam, it's a tasting exam, and it's a serving exam. And typically, and this at this time, 50 people took the exam, uh, six passed. It is typically, the pass rate is in the 6, 8, 10% neighborhood. Uh, but I highly recommend it. I'm not a wino, but just the process of watching these people be able to analyze a, a wine and tell you where it's from and, and give it all its characteristics and be able to identify it uh, is just it was just amazing so the so the movie is called psalm it's a documentary it's on netflix get it and you mark you my friend will absolutely love it that sounds good well that brings us to a close ladies and gentlemen boys and girls it's been fun being with you and until next time it's greg saying goodbye and this is Rick, and uh, that's the beginning of uh, another year. We hope that you had a great past year and that your future year, the 2000 and what is it going to be, 14? Yeah. Are, are just going to be terrific for you. Yeah. That's it, guys. Bye for now. Bye-bye.